I learned something new today, actually. Apparently, only the dollar store sells freezer pops already frozen. There's got to be another place that sells a freezer pop that's already frozen. Well, the two Kroger's I rolled into sure as shit didn't. Did you check like Publix and Aldi and... I mean, I was running on limited time heading over here to record with you, so I couldn't just like bounce all over town. Because admittedly, these weren't for the kids. This was actually for me. (laughs) So what is a grown man doing with freezer pops? I don't know. I've just been craving them lately. Like ever since uh, like two or three weekends ago or, you know, when I was mildly sick, not COVID, but some weird bug, but ended up uh, like mowing through a whole box in two days. And ever since then, those damn things just taste good. This is the most interesting cold open that anyone's ever heard. Hey, I'm pulling the curtain back. Okay. Bottom line. Zeke wishes he was still in camp and in third grade. Hello, hello, everyone. My name is John Edwards, and with me virtually is Zeke Baker, and together we make the Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Wherever you are, whatever time it is, thank you for making us a part of your day. Say hello to the folks, Zeke Baker. Hello, hello. And I see you are in a black hat. You are not in a green hat. We have a friend with us that is in a green hat. Before we get to him and what he's all about. Want to let you know tonight's show is sponsored by cascartel.com, changing the industry standard as to how you get your alcohol. Now more than ever, people are in quarantine. People may be opening back up soon, but you're not rushing to go out and be around a whole bunch of people. Let cascartel.com ship your liquor directly to your door. It is a convenient play. Obviously, if you're there looking for allocated bourbons, they might be priced a little bit higher than your daily drinkers, but the daily drinkers should be on par with what you're going to get at your favorite store. So go ahead and go to cascartel.com. Let them ship it directly to you. They have vodka, tequila, gin, amaro, all sorts of good stuff, whiskey, bourbon, scotch, rum, tequila. Go ahead and go to cascartel.com and get it shipped right right to you also follow them on instagram at cast cartel for all the giveaways that they do all the time zeke i really enjoy the person that we have on tonight he's been on many a times you should go back and listen to the old episodes we've had with him mr snoopaloop bring your green hat sean josephs from pinhook how are you what's up guys how you doing is this setting the record now? I think did he did he leapfrog again over um, Yamada for the the most number of shows? No, it's him and Dan Gardner. Oh yeah, Dan. Well, I, knew, I, knew, I knew there was three people, and I, I literally, sorry, Dan, I brain farted. But I'm like, all right, it's always a constant running, and and you know, one leapfrogs the other at least every three months as far as who who's uh or who we've been fortunate enough to have on the most. And Sean is definitely at the point now where it's like Saturday Night Live. He has the robe that has the five on it. And Tom Hanks is welcoming <laughs> him in to the Five Timers Club. So welcome. First of all, thank you. Second of all, let it be said, you guys were the first people to invite me to be on anything. And now so, look at you. You're hanging out with people that are far bigger than we are. <laughs> I don't even know who that would be. But the truth of the matter is, like, I remember when... When I was in touch with you guys, certainly nothing has changed in this regard, but I was just thrilled for the opportunity and still always love talking to you guys. But it feels like a while ago. I don't know. We'd have to look back and see when that first episode was, but I feel like we were just a couple of years ago. It, it had to have been 2017 or 
2018. But my favorite thing about that is peeling back the curtain a little bit. I used to do the horse racing radio network. So Pinhook was always a brand that I was collecting when you guys did that original run of MGP that you were putting out every six months. And I was super excited just because you named it after the horse and the whole angle like that. I reached out to you and I'm like, I'd love to have you on the show. I used to do the horse racing radio network. I love the horse racing side of it. And you're like, yeah, uh, Jamie does that. I don't really know anything about that, but I'll come on and talk whiskey. <laughs> and then we had you on and you know, you, you mentioned like, yeah, so there's bourbon lane stables. We name it after the horse. It's, it's a great yeah. story. It is what makes us us, but I don't really understand horse racing. I just do whatever Jamie tells me to do. Yeah. Correct. Which is way more fun to gamble that way anyway. Not that I win that much money with him, but I just like going to Keeneland with him and I'm just like, what's the bet? You know, the biggest thing I learned betting with him and other experienced people is it's more about knowing which race to bet on and what bet to place. I don't know how to do it. I just know you have to place like an exotic bet on a race where you feel like some level of confidence in which horses are in the game and how they might come in. And then like, that's where you put it all down. And if Whoa. you're going to win, you, you win big, right? Not getting us off on a tangent on handicapping here, but you know, if you look at yeah. a race and the favorite is one to one or two to one, yes, and you know that you're going to put him in an exotic, if yes. he wins, you're screwed. Unless you think that there is a long shot that's going to come up and actually get in the money and beat that favorite, it's better to stay away from that race. A hundred percent. That's what I learned. But the first time I ever went to a track which was in New York at Belmont. I had the classic first time horse racing thing. I was in the paddock. I saw a horse and I was just like, God, that horse just looks powerful. That horse just looks like a winner. And I put my little $2 down or whatever it is. And I won. You just feel this surge of excitement. And also for one brief moment, you're just like delusional because you think you know something. It's like one shining moment on CBS. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I've got this. And then, you know, it all goes sideways. The person sitting next to you is like, I bet this horse because it's wearing red silks. And then yes. you're like, oh, all, there's no rhyme or reason. There's no rhyme or reason. John felt that way about me when we first got the idea to start the podcast. And then, you know, shit just went downhill. Wait, remind me when you guys started it. <laughs> 2016. But we started a blog first and Zeke never wrote. So Zeke's like, <laughs> Zeke's like that horse that looks really good, the paddock, and then he gets out on the track and just dies real quick. You know, he jumps out in the lead, makes all the other horses run after him, and then he just fades out and all the horses blow by him. Probably makes a lot of noise in the gate, looks good in the paddock. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like as soon as you came out, I'd be like the one that rares back on the two hind legs and two front <laughs> or up, just going. And then like as soon as the first turn hits, everybody else goes left and I go right to the bar. I will say probably before we get into topics like bourbon, though, what's so cool, and I mean this very genuinely, with the first time I met you guys, I think was probably the second time I'd ever been to Nashville. I've now been to Nashville many times to do what we do in the business and work the market and visit accounts and all that kind of stuff. But more than anything, I've like most of the time been able to hang out with you guys, met your other friends, and now Nashville f feels like a very comfortable, familiar, awesome place that I can go to. And I know I can pick up the phone and call any number of people and we can all hang out and have a good time. And like, that's what's so cool about, and it's a cliche, I know, but it happens to be true that the bourbon community is just this very generous, 
open group of people that just love to hang out and share and have a good time. And I feel like in a way, my experience of that really started with you guys on that show and, and all the kind of friendships I've built through it have been so cool. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we don't toot our own horns on that, but Nashville's, it's great for bourbon. It really is. Yes. Um, so many fun people, times, places. And at the end of the day, it's literally just everyone wants to get together and relish in yeah. sharing good pours. And no one gives a shit about anything else. Like, hey, we don't care where we're meeting or what we're doing. Let's just have some good pours and have a damn good time. And if I can say, even though far be it for me as a a guest to try to make a segue. Nashville is an amazing urban town with a lot of knowledgeable people. And of course, because you all make whiskey in Tennessee and you're so close to Kentucky, I do think there's a level of understanding of whiskey in Nashville or in Tennessee in general that exceeds much of the rest of the country. And so I feel like when we got started with Pinhook, we got off to a decent start in Tennessee and people appreciated what we were doing. But I do feel like as much as MGP has been very accepted at this point, And there are even people who seek out MGP. I felt, especially for what in the business we call on-premise, you know, restaurants and bars, there was still just that resistance to like, okay, it's Pinhook. You guys do a nice job. You have a great story. You're clearly transparent and earnest and you have good intentions. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of other MGP stuff out there. And then, you know, unfortunate timing wise, not to get into difficult things, but there was a tornado in Nashville. And then two weeks after that, like the COVID-19 thing blew up. But just prior to that, we launched our first Kentucky rye, Ride On, which is our custom distillate from Castle and Key, which was our first ever Kentucky distillate. It was the first whiskey to come out of the old Taylor distillery since it was shut down in 1972. Also, Castle and Key, because they sell their vodka and gin, in Tennessee had built a big following, I think, particularly for their gin. So there's already a lot of familiarity with Castle and Key. So when we came out with Ride On, like it did, like, pardon the analogy, but it came, we came flying out of the gates and we saw a lot of those barriers that I think had been up a little bit specifically with restaurants and bars where all of a sudden we were getting great cocktail opportunities and people wanted to put us put us in the well and all that kind of stuff. So it was cool to see because I, to be honest, I, I never take offense to people kind of saying like, Hey, there's enough MGP stuff out there. And I'm sure you guys do a great job blending, but you know, maybe we're more interested in craft distillers or maybe we're more into Chattanooga whiskey or what have you. So it, I knew it was going to be an exciting moment for us. And it was cool to see it really come to fruition with that rye. No, I think the, um, the night when you had the launch and, uh, we were all at peg leg porker that, that was my, I think that might've been the last like big get together that any of us were mm-hmm. able to have. No shit. Feels like one of my last normal nights. <laughs> <laughs> like and, and, and by normal, we convinced a bar to stay open for an extra hour. Thanks. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah and then we we opened up the other bottle of ride on and let them all try it it was fun i do have to ask and i'm going back to something that we were talking about five minutes ago before you made an amazing yeah. segue oh thank you when are you just going to get an apartment here in nashville that's a great question you know, i mean i do say to my wife i'm like it's interesting because i travel Pinhook is now distributed in 25 states and in fairness like i don't spend a lot of time in delaware or New Mexico. I mean, some of these states are relatively speaking case volume wise and we don't spend a lot of time there, but I do travel a lot and I do talk to my wife about like, and I live in New Orleans, which is not a bad city, right? So it would take a lot to move, but I, I do put 
honestly, I put Nashville at the top of my list when I mentioned her. She's like, well, what places would you consider? And I'm, and my apologies, because I know from what the Uber drivers tell me that you don't want anyone else coming to Nashville, <laughs> but I would consider. No, I, consider I mean, we want there. people that own their own whiskey brand because they're going to bring whiskey with okay. them. So you're, you're okay. grandfathered in. I could never leave New Orleans if I ever uh, settled in there permanently. Uh, by far my favorite city to, to visit over the years. And I haven't been there since uh, the boy was born, but that itch is going to get scratched sooner than later, I do believe. Well, I mean, John was due for a trip here. When we get on the other side of this business, we'll just have to make it work. That I don't think he could handle me in New Orleans. He no, can... I was planned. Like I had it booked. I was going to go down to New Orleans and Sean and I were going to hang out. And then this happened and I had to cancel the trip. So we will reschedule that. Another point that I want to get back to real quick is, you know, you yeah. talk about us and what happened to us in a few years and just knowing you. I mean, even going back to when we first met you, you were still putting yeah. out 90 proof mgp like i said earlier each one you know, you you had bought a lot of mgp barrels yep. you were letting it age once you released yep. that first one it was every six seven months you would release another one yep now you were at the point from there you got your own younger mgp while you were waiting for this castle and key distillate to age so there were Correct. a couple of releases that were a younger mgp from what people were used to in the beginning yep. But the interesting thing about those younger MGPs is that you started to play with the proof a little bit. Yep. You also released the vertical for MGP, which is Bourbon War. You started, uh, yep. you got 1,350 barrels of MGP and you were releasing yep. 150 every year. Now we get to the end. You've released Ride On, which is a Castle and Key Rye. And now yep. you have Bohemian Bourbon. This was a very long segue, but I wanted to tell your story. Tell yes. us a little bit about this distillate, what you picked for a mash bill, how old yep. is it? So, you know, the rye was, ride on, it was the first whiskey to come out of Old Taylor, now Castle and Key, since it shut down in, in 72. And now this is the first bourbon to come out of there since it shut down. You know, it's interesting, like, I know when we talk about ride on, ride on is an unusual mash bill in that it's so high in, in malted barley. So 60% rye, 20% barley, 20% corn. And frankly, you know, which we talked about before, I picked that mash bill because when I was tasting these different options, you know, you're tasting white dog with different yeasts, that was the best rye I tasted, you know, most complex, most depth of flavor, et cetera. I had the same rationale for the bourbon, right? I'm not looking, there was no angle, there was no preconceived notion. It's just like, here are your options. And one of the options for both rye and bourbon was to have the same mash bill that we had with MGP. So the bourbon mash bill from MGP that we had, I know people are familiar with the high rye, which is the 35%. I don't, 35% rye. I don't even think that existed, to be honest. When we first started picking barrels, my understanding, at least in terms of what was presented to me, was that the bourbon mash bill was the one that we got, which is 75% corn, 20.5% rye, 4.5% malted barley. So that, that was our MGP mash bill. But anyway, that was one of the mash bills that I tasted at Castle and Key. The one that I ended up picking, which is Bohemian Bourbon and you know all of our bourbons for the foreseeable future, is 75% corn, 15% rye, and 10% barley. Which I'm sure, as you guys know, is what you know at my restaurants. I would I had us I would break out bourbons kind of by style, and I considered that to be traditional Nashville bourbon. Which I don't know if that's like a actual term. I just felt free to make it up at the time because no one really cared about bourbon. Um, 
but you know, to me looking around, it was kind of like it's 75% corn and it's kind of equal parts rye and malted barley, right? Is the balance. And I'm saying this now and I might put my foot in the mouth, my mouth because I don't like remember all the mash bills of all this stuff. But I remember when people would come into my restaurant, chart number four, and they wanted to taste like quintessential bourbon. And I always would reach for like Elmer Teeley or Rock Hill Farm. You guys probably know what those mash bills are. But anyway, it's more about that quintessential bourbon flavor, that butterscotchy, caramel, fruity, not a ton of spice. It's the bourbon that is why people that love scotch hate bourbon, you know, because they like something drier. And it's just so sweet and almost like candied. But to me, that was kind of like what bourbon is. And so I guess in a way, I'm not surprised that I picked a mash bill that's very traditional. But of course, each distillery has from stills to the water source to the rickhouses to grain sourcing and fermentation and all that kind of stuff. There's so many other decisions that are made that would make each place unique. But yeah, I picked something that in a way you would say mash bill wise is pretty straightforward in in the bourbon realm well i think you know especially for you know young or young ish juice and, and you know some of the stuff we've had the higher corn especially with good grains good malted barley it really fares the best you know the stuff coming out of willet the ones i've loved the most have been the high corn those are just really sweet the malt just synergizes in a good way with it. And, you know, you just really want that hint of rye that, you know, bumps a little bit of spice. So, you know, you're yep. working with something. But, you know, like you said, I, I think that's quintessential bourbon and what we all think about of the first time we probably had it. I still think 10% barley is a little bit higher than what people would say a <clears throat> traditional bourbon would be. I mean, a lot of what you see is like a 5% barley to eight percent barley yep i think it's it's unique enough that you are doing something different there are aspects of it that not everybody else is doing in a little bit higher of a malt i mean it's not 33 like we've seen from other people but 10 is still a little bit more than uh what you would get i neglected the answer too so this is um the youngest barrels are 34 months old but let's just say for argument's sake we're at three years or a little shy of three the age statement has to be 34 months and there's not much north of three years, but you know, so we're right around three years old at this point with Bohemian. It's cool though. I don't know. I, I mentioned it to you when we were talking about the the show. I don't know if you have it, but I, I did do a side by side with the cast strength bourbon from MGP and this, I thought it was really interesting because they're pretty close in age and obviously the mash bills are a bit different. I thought they had some nice commonalities but also were quite different from each other as well, which was a really interesting comparison. I was just going to laugh and say, um, as we've tasted both the rye and the bourbon, you know, transitions that are Castle and Key now, I actually get a pretty big laugh, especially nosing these. Yeah. It's what I would just have to call the Sean profile at this point. Hmm. (laughs) There's just signature hits that I get on both. I got in probably at least the final two or three releases that were MGP pin hooks. Yeah. Granted, knowing how you, you work through things and work through the various profiles before you decide on a blend and where you want to go, I just kind of laugh with that in mind and think, yep, this feels like his sweet spot to me. I, 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 oh, I, can, cool. I can see why I went there. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, look, I think that's really cool to hear you say because I like the way you said it because it wasn't clear whether it was a compliment or not. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's cool because 
the bottom line, which is like the question that people ask me is like, because we don't have a set flavor profile and we don't have a set proof for any of our expressions, right? So each time, I don't know, I'd say we're starting from zero, but we don't go into it like most distilleries or brands do, which is like trying to basically hit their set profile, which actually, you know, come to think of it, I feel like John, you asked me this and I remember kind of answering, like, I don't think we can say we know the answer to this yet is like, well, will there be a style? If you're going to jump around, you switch mash bills. And then even within the same mash bill, the proofs are different. The ages are different. All this kind of stuff. Is there going to be a through line or a common thread that ties everything together? It sounds like Zeke was saying yes, which I will take as a compliment. It was definitely a, a compliment in the sense of we've always enjoyed the juice, but it was also to a degree like, you know, when you referenced, um, you know, being at Char and other places when people would come in and they expect certain elements out of bourbon or rye, you know, either whiskey. That's kind of where I resonated to was simply at this point, I feel like, you know, you pinpoint those elements that you want and those have to be there are, you know, it's going to get the X. They come across in different amounts and I can't think of the word I'd want to use, but the prevalency, I guess, is always varied, but they're always there to a degree. And it's basically just like, all right, if I'm going to put something out, it has to have these core essentials. Correct. Like I, I literally uh, drew a triangle and it was simply there's three elements I feel like that are, are now just kind of a, a staple to the line and the brand yeah. and, and where you've, you've gone with things. And I enjoy them all. I, I laughed as I drew it like, all right, this is going to be the best tasting on ever. Damn triangle. <laughs> what's the triangle though we'll get there what are the points of the triangle um, I'm, I'm sorry maybe i'm not supposed to, to push you for the details <laughs> um kind of all over the place in a sense of nose and palate definitely on the nose i would say both mgp and castle and key i get the smell of those cow tails candy things yeah and I get it like so distinct. I even bought them recently. One of the trips to the dollar store I saw them when I was checking out. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to buy these just to make sure I'm not off my rocker when I say this. And like 100%, it was spot on. Like I, I just get that smell of like the caramel, the vanilla inside and whatever that little powdery stuff is they put on the outside that just gives it that yeah. little bit of a dampered smell. It's just there now. The, cool though what you're saying about that, which is to me like a big part of, I guess, the process is that I think, and I had a conversation with someone recently, typically in the bourbon world, everyone would say, I want it to smell good, but they're not like, I need it to hit a certain level of aromatics in order for it to kind of qualify. Like it needs to be aromatically in a certain place in order for me to feel like this can represent one of our whiskeys. And because we're playing around with so many different proofs, you're moving from 10, 15 different proofs to find which, where can you find the nose where it's going to hit a thing? And bourbon has all this sweetness in it. So if you're playing with that range somewhere in there, you're going to find the nose. And I, I guess for me, and I think this is, you know, and maybe John on the one hand expects this, but also gets tired of it. But like, I can't get away from the wine thing. No, I, I, and, I just expect it in wine you would reject a wine for not having great aromatics you wouldn't reject it and say you wouldn't drink it you would simply say it can't be a complete wine like if it has no aroma but it has some other nice qualities on the palate your judgment of it would be limited by its lack of a nose i just think i mean we all know how much the olfactory is connected to taste and to me it's important you put your nose in the glass and it's kind of like makes you perk up a little bit and makes you curious to smell it again. And it brings you back to the glass to be like, whoa, what was that? Like, that was interesting. But I guess 
going back to what we were saying before, because so many of the notes in bourbon are sweet, it would make sense to me that when you do find an aromatic nose, part of what you're going to grab is that kind of candied sweet. You know, it's also nice to have a nose and profile that match. I mean, you know, we, we, we jokingly always say, uh, you know, does the curtain match the drapes? Yep. And there's plenty of times it, it doesn't. Both sides of the coin, some better, some worse. There's nothing more of a uh, confusing moment, you know, when you get in and nose something and either you don't get a nose and then it tastes, you know, good or bad, or you get a great nose and then yeah. it tastes awful. Yeah. There's just no worse, uh, you know, conundrum than like, Jesus, I got all buttered up and excited over this thing. I nosed it for 10 minutes. thought this was going to be amazing. Then, yeah. Oh. <laughs> And I have to say, too, even though, you know, at the risk of it sounding like the pinhook sales spiel. But that's like, to me, that is we were talking about those parameters. And to me, it's like aromatic complexity, complexity on the palate, balance, you know, like a harmony of flavors, length of finish, texture and alcohol integration. Those are the things. And I think with palate, too, it's like we used to talk in wine and I think whiskey is the same. You talk about something can be like a donut, meaning it hits your palate. And it hits around it, but it doesn't hit the middle. Do you ever get those whiskeys where you're like, that's weird. You like, I felt it on the side and I felt it on the tip and I felt it on the back, but it never hit the center of my palate. And I think we all know, at least those of us that taste a lot and really think about whiskey in this way is like the whiskeys that blow you away are the ones that hit your entire palate, like front, middle, back, side. It's like a complete experience. And then on top of that, the finish is long and lingering and it has great aromas like that to me, objectively are the components of a great whiskey. Yeah, it's the um, the checks all the boxes, uh, you know, yes. line, which I mean, I, I get what it represents. And, and John and I both try to stay away from it just because it's such a, a used and coined term. At least I feel like for us, you know, trying to review something, if we just said, ah, you know, it checks all the boxes. Well, what the hell oh, does yeah. that mean? Like, you know, it means something, but at the same time, you're copping out by not saying like, well, I got this or that. And then, you know, I picked up this here and it's just the most nondescript Term oh, yeah. for me and that's why i said almost it's like at the risk of it sounding like a, a sales thing but the reality is like there has to be something that forms the way that i try to think about how we're shaping the whiskey but by the same token i would say i'm also more like you which is like i'm looking for outliers i'm looking for character like when i taste other things and i don't try to get yeah it's just like check 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 like you can just be I think a whiskey can, let's say, miss some of the boxes, but be so amazing in certain areas or just kind of like catch your fancy in a way because it just hits you in a certain way that, you know, really grabs you. And so there's a lot of room for that, too. But when it comes to the actual process of like sitting down and having to, you know, sit in a room and put one together, I do have to check the boxes in my head to think about like, does this fit what we're trying to do? And maybe to your point, it sounds like hopefully it's working a little bit because Maybe there will be a style that someone would taste something that wasn't pinhook and say, if pinhook picked a single barrel of four roses, it would taste like this. I mean, maybe that's a little overly ambitious for me to think that that world could ever exist. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, because the bottom line is like, I would love if four roses would sell me some barrels. Right. <laughs> you know, I think you definitely, you know, find your groove and obviously sales would be what, you know, speaks the volumes. All right. If bottles are, are still moving off the shelf at a good rate, then, you know, what we're doing must be on the right track. But I would wonder, do you ever have that moment where, you know, you're tasting through some of those blends or you space out or whatever? It's like, all right, this one over here does check the boxes and does fit my, uh, you know, motif, so to speak. But this other thing, 
understand. It's just speaking to me really loudly right now. Like I, I, I just can't get away from it and I don't know why. Yeah. And I think to your point, I would always go for the latter. <laughs> no, I really would. I mean, I think in the end, like that's what's fun about what I do is I think what we set up in a great way with Pinhook is because we have no set flavor profile, I can say that I have an idea of what we're trying to achieve, but then we have the freedom to go with whatever we want. I wasn't setting you up. I, I literally wouldn't have expected anything different. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, n- knowing you well enough by now, I would fully expect like, all right, we're in the moment. We're tasting. Damn it. This one's good. I don't care what my gut's telling me, but this is good. We're going. Yeah. And I think that's what <laughs> that's what's the fun of it is, because when you're when you're doing it, it does in a way come down to that moment where you make the call of the different blend options. We're going with this one. And then you go through the proofs and you're kind of like, I don't know, there was something about 95.5 that was pretty incredible. But 101 is like, you know, and there is this kind of back and forth. But at the end of the day, there's no phone a friend, right? So you just kind of, you know. Let's get in here and talk about this Bohemian a little bit more because I've been sitting here doing a little (laughs) side-by-side on the the bourbon country versus the Bohemian bourbon. And I think, Sean, you brought it up, so I figured I had to go do it. Yeah. And the nose for the bourbon country, it's not as thick of a nose. It's almost like speaks to the viscosity of the whiskey like when i smell it i'm like this almost smells a little bit thin where the bohemian just it's like a candy thickness yeah no i think it has a depth like yeah on the nose like you just feel like it's like i know exactly what you mean you feel like it's gonna be rich yeah yeah even the nose for the bourbon country is more perfumey where yep bohemian is more of a candy you know, sweetness. It's still sweet, but it's a candy sweetness, almost like a caramel on the nose that, that really comes out. Yeah. So, Zeke, what do you get on the nose on this one? I put down corn, caramel, vanilla, singe, and then just uh, signature cowtails in parentheses. I, I laugh because I guess, you know, nose and moving into to tasting, I'll kind of jump ahead, but I think it kind of goes back to something you were, you were speaking on earlier, and especially with a younger-ish whiskey, you know, obviously the corn is going to be prevalent and be there. Of course. But it's not like drinking, um, you know, mellow corn or, or shine or any other, you know, super corn-based product. I think that's where I'm not smart enough to know the difference or, or you know, in the business by any means. But my guess is that the quality and the, the ratio of the barley in there and that malt is what really kind of tames the higher corn, especially at a higher proof. My first tasting note was corn forward with malt behind it, and I put down frosted flakes. Yeah. Like, that's a balance. And, you know, it's a simple example, but who doesn't love damn frosted flakes? I mean, there's a reason. I love the frosted flake note. I made an old-fashioned with this two nights ago. I'm already very low on the amount of simple I add. So a lot of people add a half an ounce to two ounces of bourbon. I'm a quarter ounce. I only did an eighth of an ounce when I made an old fashioned with it because it's just got like that, which is basically one bar spoon, like because it's it really is that sweet. Yeah. It's crazy, too. I didn't mention the So this is 114.5 proof. If you said three year old, 75 percent corn, 114.5 proof, you would be right to be concerned that you're going to be dealing with something that could be pretty assertive and astringent and the fact that it manages to taste like frosted flakes and be like very candied and sweet is 
I think pretty cool. Yeah. And I'm so, with Zeke on that where you know, the first thing that really hit me was corn. It's very much a candied corn with the caramel and the vanilla in there. And then I think it's that tail end where the malt really comes and and that Frosted Flakes flavor really comes through. The beginning is more like, oh, this is a little more corn than I was expecting at first. And then it rounds out as you go through it. I liked it. It's an enjoyable pour as always. I kind of dig the stuff that you go for in those cowtail notes, your signature. Funny how it kind of moves through, you know? Yeah, and I, honestly, I was uh, on the same page as Edwards for once. Uh, extended notes just say malt finish, hangs well, slight singe, also viscous. Kind of circling back to that kind of checks the boxes things. I mean, it, it does. And you know, like I said, we we try to stray away from using that as a, a scapegoat for us giving notes, but it really does hit most parameters. Something I w- would want to ask, you know, how in-depth were you in quality of grains? I don't think people talk about it enough or too much, Yeah, but I feel like that has to be an essential aspect that, that gets overlooked a lot. That's a great point. And I don't think on the one hand, I'm the wrong person to ask because I'm not the one like visiting the farmers and you know what I mean? Like I'm not digging in, yeah. but what I can say, and it'll be interesting, you know, I think time will tell when we're tasting these two next to each other. And this isn't like a competition, like who's better, MGP or Castle and Key. We're tasting two bourbons of roughly the same age at roughly the same proof. Castle and Key is using all non-GMO grain. They're using local farms. They're using 100% groundwater, sort of like the lost thing that I first thing I remember being taught about bourbon or like bourbon, beer and sake was water's the most important ingredient. Colonel Taylor picked the location for the old Taylor distillery because of spring, a ground spring. They're still pulling water from that spring. And the whole point, and I'm sure I've said this to you guys before because it's always so painful for me, but like the, and I hope no one from New Orleans is listening, but like, I don't think we make the best beer in America in New Orleans because taking Mississippi water and doing reverse osmosis is not the same as having mineral rich water in Vermont, in California, in Maine, you know, all these, and there are plenty of places with great water sources, but you, you bring up, like I said, a really good point. There's the grain, there's mineral rich water and not going through the city system, but going directly from the ground. And I'm going to be super curious to see one thing, which is very minor, but interesting to me, all the barrels are from the space side cooperage. They do laser cut staves, which is supposed to lead to a lot less leaking. And all I can say so far is all of our calculations have been totally off. Even for younger whiskey, when we decide how many barrels we want to dump in order to hit certain production quantities, because there's way more whiskey in our barrels than from MGP. So you got to expand on that a little bit uh, for us uh, slow people like me. Oh, I just, I mean, clearly the other barrels were leaking I mean, I don't know. MGP sources from so many people. What does laser cut difference actually mean? I mean, I, I get what I you're saying. I think it's just like laser cut means more precise uh, cuts than I guess cut by a saw. And so you're going to have tighter, you know, the staves are going to be tighter against each other. I try to always be very careful to not wade into areas where I'm no jack shit. So I'll probably stop there. But all I can say <laughs> is. They say they have laser cut staves. We're getting more whiskey, which I'm happy about. That's a good thing for us. We also know, unlike MGP, that all of our barrels are coming from the same place. So we now know that Castle and Key has two rick houses, B and E. One is concrete, one is brick. 
And it's way too early to say, well, the ones in the brick, brick house are aging like this, the ones in the concrete are aging like this. But the whole fun thing we have in front of us is knowing that we're always getting the same barrels, knowing we're getting non-GMO locally sourced grains, knowing we're getting this water straight from the ground. Let's see where it goes. I'm super, super happy with Ride On, which is two and a half year old rye distilled at Castle and Key and now Bohemian Bourbon, you know, almost three years old. So, and I think I have to take it with a grain of salt with someone who's, you know, makes younger whiskey when they say how much they like young whiskey. But I think for all the reasons you guys said, this is super cool. And it's not like, do I think on some level it would be better when it's five years old? Sure. Absolutely. But there'll also be some of the things that we enjoy in this that will be lost. I'm with you a hundred percent. You know, I kind of laugh again, kind of like circling back around to, uh, you know, Willet and some of their high corn, just because I, you know, our good friend, Mr. Hines has picked a few of those single barrels. And I, I still think my, my favorite one was the first one he picked, I think, at five years. Yeah. And, and he and I even agree about that. Like, there was just something about it. And it was even low proof, like uh, 99 point something. The intangibles were just there. And I guess that speaks to a, uh, you know, single barrel, obviously. But uh, I'm with you 110%. I'll also throw out there back to the New Orleans thing. You know, at least Dixie beer beats Pabst most days. You know, I haven't even taken, I need to, I, I'm a bad New Orleanian. I haven't tasted <laughs> New Dixie from the Dixie Brewery, which I, I need to do. I didn't even know there was a Dixie Brewery, so don't worry. Yeah, me either. I was just barely referencing New Orleans and Dixie beer. I had to think about it the whole time you were talking. <laughs> uh, so I'm fascinated too, right? I was just tasting through a bunch of single barrels for our single barrel program this year. And I have to say from, these were MGP barrels. From four to five, there's more consistency of quality, but not that much of a dramatic difference profile-wise. Like, I feel like four to five was not a big leap, whereas with our, our rye, the leap from three to four was huge. So I'm fascinated by the vertical series we're doing because I think people are like, where does it really, at what age did you make leaps I think honestly, well, it'll be fun for people to taste like in this fall, our five-year-old vertical will come out. Bourbon Country, which is the orange wax, is a three-year-old bourbon, which even though it's not labeled as vertical series, is technically part of that series because it's from the same lot of MGP barrels. So if you taste Bourbon Country next to the first vertical we released, which is four-year-old, and then next to the five-year-old, which will come out in the fall, you'll be tasting the same lot of barrels age three, age four, age five. And I think there was a huge difference between the bourbon country that I just tasted, you know, at 115.3 proof at three years and the bourbon war. You lost the corn, but I think it got thicker. I I think there was more viscosity and there was more oomph behind it. And the mouthfeel was completely different. That four-year-old bourbon war. I mean, I love it. I bought a case of that. I think it hits all of the right notes at a four-year-old whiskey at an affordable price. And thanks for mentioning affordable. Bohemian bourbon is a $49.99. In spite of all those nice things we're saying about non-GMO, you know, locally sourced grain and all that kind of stuff, we're maintaining those same price points. You hate to always make that a big deal, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's relevant. It's necessary evil to discuss. I'm glad you said that, though. To me, it's super relevant, right? Because... For people who are listening to this and they hear it and they're like, you know what, I should go grab a bottle of that. I would think not just for myself, but for you guys, 
your recommendation on whether someone should or should not do that is very different. If this three-year-old Castle and Key 114.5 proof bourbon is $49.99 or $69.99. Yeah, I mean, people used to deal $89.99 or, and frankly, in the world we live in now, it wouldn't be absurd to say that it's $129. No, people used to ding us both. They'd say, you know, price isn't a tasting note. They should be separate functions. And, you know, John and I both just totally adamantly came back with like, all right, well, we're two working ass men. We got families and kids. We know what it's like. You look at something on the shelf, you have to factor in how much does this damn thing cost and how much is that going to affect my budget and life? You know, it is very relevant. There's a lot of people that have disposable income out there and can go get any whiskey they want and spend 500000 2000 on whiskey in secondary markets or at the store when they want to get something retail and it's sitting behind a, a glass case. But for the majority of the people, they're going to look at it and say, I can get X for 50 that tastes good, or I can get this other X for 500 that's great. You know what? I'm probably going to get two of the good over one of the great and spend 100 over 500 because people have families, they have bills, they have other stuff. And like, that was something that we thought about when we did this podcast. And when we started yeah. dad drinking bourbon, it's if you're thinking about a family, yeah, sorry, we don't have jobs where we can go spend a shit ton of money on anything we want whenever we want it. I wish we did people that have those jobs. Tell me what they are so I can go jump over and do it. Gigolos, John gigolos. I know. I do a lot of jiggling, but no O's. <laughs> I also think that even if you do have disposable income, you go into a store and you're like, you know, I was listening to Dad's Drinking Bourbon. They had this guy on from Pinhook. It sounded kind of cool. I'm going to go into the store and buy the thing. And you spend $49.99 and you taste it and you go, it's, it's pretty good. I'm definitely going to taste it again. Maybe I'll make an old fashioned with it. I'm not like doing backflips, but like really solid. I enjoy it. Your perception of that varies dramatically based on the price point. If they heard you guys recommend it and they went and spent $89 on it and they weren't crazy about it, they'd be more like, yeah, because well, the, the, the price is, I mean, it's performance to price. Like it, you should expect there to be some connection between what you pay and in and, and the same way when you pay not that much for something, you're more forgiving. Being cash drink too. Well, yeah. You know, that that stretches it further because, yeah, we'll all have a, a nice, neat pour on a blend from time to time and, you know, nose, taste, work through it. But there's also those times when you, you want to, you know, cut it a little bit and, you know, it's late at night. I'm just going to go to town here. Well, 50 for cash drink, that's going to stretch out a lot further as opposed to, you know, 50 for a, a 92 proof or whatever. And also that's the thing people don't pay attention to that much is like, what I'm proud of that we do is like, you know, ride on is our everyday ride. It's 97 proof. It's a lot of the entry level stuff is that 80 proof, 86 proof, maybe 90 proof. Let's be honest, like you're paying for the things you're paying for are should in theory be age among others, but primarily age and and proof. Well, I think this is all stuff that we could talk about here soon. I want to say, Sean, thank you. I'm a fan of Bohemian bourbon. Glad you I, like it. I don't know about Zeke. You never know with him. No, no. I, I mean, I, it, it's in the wheelhouse. People's affinity for corn can be very finicky. 
and I, I'm definitely in that boat. But where the corn hit is in the right way, uh, I assume that has to do a lot with the grains. You mentioned some of the water as well. Uh, you know, we talked in the past. The malt complements it well. And, you know, when I can write down frosted flakes as an oat. I'll take that. I mean, how many boxes that damn cereal sells every single day or year or whatever. You mentioned barrel pick. Will barrel picks be MGP or Castle and Key Juice this year? And um, more importantly, when do we get to go do one with you again? Those are two great questions. As happy as I am with this blend, as happy as I was with Ride On. And if you think about, of course, the nature of the single barrel pick, we only do our single barrel picks at Cast Strength. So you have to find enough barrels that we feel like taste amazing at Cast Strength. And I just felt like even though our single barrel program is pretty small compared to a lot of folks. We just weren't getting enough barrels at that level. So we're doing one more year of MGP. And so we'll start next year. We'll do Castle and Key single barrel picks when we have four-year-old rye and four-year-old bourbon. But that said, and I don't know if I mentioned this to you, John, and I think this is going to be kind of fun. In order to make this happen, the thing that made the most sense was to make them vertical single barrels. And so we will... And in spite of being accused that I've been running around a lot, running around the town... I don't think I've mentioned this anywhere else because we're starting it. We feel like we have to finish. So although it will be limited, we will release annual MGP single barrels for the life of the vertical series as well. So in addition to our blends at whatever proof I pick, you'll also be able to follow age four to age 12 single barrels at cast strength as well as rye. So that'll be fun. And obviously you guys know you're, we're good. Now, when will this barrel pick happen? I mean, I can't wait to stop doing dishes and, every 17 times a day and stop homeschooling and get back out in the world. So hopefully we'll be back in the fall and fun if we could do something then. Well, we can't wait. I will just say, Zeke, do you have anything else you want to ask him considering that I, mean, I have I, three hours of work left to do tonight? I can, I can drag it on. I had to get in the important one. And if you can't say us all sitting down again and picking a barrel isn't important, then you can go uh, put my foot in your nethers. All right. Well, thank you. I'm going to be up till two in the morning now. So Sean, it is always a pleasure having you on. We look forward to that barrel pick. We look forward to you coming back up to Nashville. Before we close things out, want to let you know that all of our glassware is provided by distilleryproducts.com. Janie, Carson, Vicky, all the good folks over there at Distillery Products, whatever you need. If you need wholesale laser etched glassware, check them out. They have the Glen, the Wee Glen, the Tua, the Neat the rocks glass, tipsy rocks glass. They do flask decanters, whatever it is, whatever you need. Check out distilleryproducts.com. If you go to most distilleries and say, hey, where do you get your glassware? Chances are they are going to say distilleryproducts.com. That's actually where I learned about them and I'm glad I did. So send me an email, send me a direct message. I will be happy to get you in touch with the good folks over there so that you can get glasses for your store, your distillery, or your whiskey group. Sean, thanks again. We can't wait to do it again. Thank you guys so much. You're right. Somehow, even though we somehow, what did you say? Am I... Do I have the most number of appearances getting close? But anyway, somehow we always find awesome tangents to go off on digressions, rabbit holes. We, we missed the Celtics this time, but you know, next time. Have you been watching the Jordan doc? <laughs> you know what? I haven't started it. I can't wait. I'm oh, super excited. Come back after you watch it. Cause it's going to change your life. Yeah. And now John drags us out. Well, I'll just say, go ahead and find Sean on Instagram, hashtag bourbon. 
Go ahead and find Pinhook on Instagram at Pinhook Bourbon. Go ahead and find them on Facebook. Find us on Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon, Twitter at Bourbon Dads, Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Join our Facebook group. You can also find us wherever you download your podcasts. Zeke, where else can the folks find us? Good old Nashville, Tennessee. Also in Nashville, Tennessee, if you go to Radnor Wine and Spirits, you can find our uh, Breaking Bread Rye pick from Pinhook. There's probably, I think, 20 or so barrels still there. Why they're still there is beyond me. It's amazing juice, but uh, gobble one up while you can. And look for us on Dad's Drinking Bourbon Live, live streaming a different day every week directly to your computer or phone screens, sponsored by our friends at Dry Duck. Cheers. Ciao.